Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're, we're your, your hosts. hosts. My name is Dr. Lona Maputuma, obviously a woman in medicine. I'm a medical doctor, a general practitioner. I've been practicing as a doctor for 16 years. I'm um, obviously in the general field of medicine, which is part of the sciences here. Like, um, and when I'm saying this, it's, I get myself filled in pride because I don't necessarily have the right statistics, but I can see that there's been a great improvement since my days. You know, I see, uh, um, you know, the, the government hospitals, I still see that a lot of women are coming up. But beyond that, I see a lot of scientists, um, scientists ladies as scientists, I see ladies in all the other science fields where they are representing us in engineering. Uh, and engineering in all sectors, you can see that more women are going into it. But it is still not enough. I, um, I must say, all in all, we are very little in number as compared to the main. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Nicole DeVette, who holds a PhD in Demography and Population Studies from the University of the Witwatersrand. She is a Carter PhD and UMAPS Fellow, as well as the coordinator of the Master's Program in Demography and Population Studies. Her research interests are in the field of health and mortality, focusing on demographic and socioeconomic determinants of adolescent health outcomes in South Africa. Dr. DeVette was the first runner-up at the Department of Science and Technology's 2016 Women in Science Awards in the Distinguished Young Woman category for Humanities and Social Science. Um, So on today's episode, we are looking at women in science, and we're talking to Dr. Nicole DeVette from the WITS Demography and Population Studies. Can you just briefly tell us a little bit about how did you get into this field? Okay, um, I did my undergrad Bachelor of Arts here at WITS University, and in my second year of study, I came across this course in sociology. Uh, an introductory course to demography and population studies and I had met my then lecturer, would-be supervisor and now academic mentor Prof Clifford Odimegu who really convinced me that there's a need for South Africans to develop quantitative social science skills and that that need would be or at least that I would be filling the need as a lecturer, researcher and uh, mentor within the program. So I've been I've been here for a very long time, since my, my second year. Did honours with, um, with the university, masters and my PhD. That's really interesting, the move from a BA social science strictly, which is all about qualitative research, yes. to quantitative. How did you find that... Was it a big shift? Definitely, definitely. I think many Bachelor of Arts students go into a Bachelor of Arts to shy away from statistics and quantitative uh, methodology. And I know that that was one of the reasons why I took the Bachelor of Arts in the first place. Mm. But having been introduced to the field, having um, just seen what it's about, 
I soon realized that you don't have to be a mathematical genius <laughs> to be able to do this. Mm. Um, you obviously need patience and dedication and a willingness to learn, but it's by no means something that is, should I say, reserved for the most bright or the, the mathematically inclined. Mm. So the shift was, was a, it was a big shift, but with an open mind and a belief that anyone can do it, I, I pursued it and I went for it. And, and did you find as you were kind of progressing through the program that there were a lot of other young women who were participating in the program? Um, because today we are specifically interested in, in the relationship between the sciences and gender. Did you find that, that a lot of women were part of the program? That's what I actually initially loved about demography was how many females were taking the course and how many have have succeeded mm. in in pursuing postgraduate degrees um, i've been in this program since 2007 mm. and almost actually every year we've always had more females in the program okay. than males and i'd like to think that i i have something to do with that i like to think that they perhaps see me and think, well, here's a female who can do it, I mm. can do it. Yeah, that's yeah. It's so important. I mean, you, you can't be what you can't see is one of the big things about I gender agree. representation in the academy. Oh, I and what, what role do you think that mentorship has played in kind of like your experience of the field and also just your trajectory? Because huge, yeah. huge, honestly. I think without, without having a mentor, I would have been lost. Without having a mentor and somebody who isn't necessarily going to tell you what you want to hear but tell you what you need to hear mm. makes a world of difference mm. i think it helped me to to mature um, as an individual it helped me to develop the skills that i needed and i definitely feel that without a mentor i perhaps would have just graduated with an undergraduate degree maybe mm. aimlessly gone out and pursued whatever job was available whereas now I feel I have more more purpose more mm. drive and I think that you know now I'm becoming a mentor as well and I want to be able to instill that in young researchers as well mm. I think that you know guidance at any age <laughs> is important and the guidance we receive at the university the guidance we receive from mentors is pivotal in whether or not we're going to do the things we otherwise would not have done. Mm. You're a recipient of a very fancy award. Here it is. It's the <laughs> Distinguished Young Woman category. Yes. The Humanities and Social Sciences Research. Can you tell us a little bit about that kind of, uh, that accolade and what those kinds of recognitions mean for you? Yeah, sure. So it was the Department of Science and Technology Award last year. I was the first runner up in the category. Essentially, I came across, well, my mentor came across the call and asked if I would be interested in going up for it. And, you know, we all have those insecurities that we're wasting our time and why do we both, like, I couldn't possibly be good enough. But I went for it anyway. And I think part of why I went for it was not for the individual accolade or the university accolade, but so that others can see that I could do it, so you could do it. Mm. You know, I mean... One of the things I came back and, and expressed to my interns after winning the award was, well, I got first runner-up. Next time, one of you need to win it. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's what's important. You know, what's important is as, as women and as young South Africans, we, we hold each other up. Mm. 
And the one way we can do that is by showing each other that nothing is impossible. Try, you know, apply. If you don't get it, you don't get it. But if you get it, encourage the next person to apply. Be, be a role model even to your peers. Mm. You know? I really love that. I mean, one of the big misconceptions about higher education is that there's one single genius who will make it yes. above everyone else. And so yes. encouraging this aspect of, you know, once I open the door, it's actually for allowing other people to come through, not for I me agree. to be on a pedestal. I agree completely, Nusifo. I think, yes, I think there is that perception mm. in academia, as I'm sure there is in, in private sector, that people are very, um, should I say, they want to hold on to their positions and are scared to let anyone else do what they do. Mm. But I, I believe that within social sciences in particular there is so much work we need to do mm. there's enough for everyone mm. you know there's there's research that needs to be conducted there are social problems that need to be faced and one person cannot do it all so why not for the the greater good at least why not encourage more people to help it takes nothing away from you and your success mm. and i think that's another big misconception is that people believe if I help somebody else, then I'm sharing my success. Mm. No, no, I don't believe that at all. I believe that when others succeed, that is a true mark of your success. And I mean, it's demography is a pretty exciting aspect for those people who are interested in big data and want to collect yes. as much information yes. as possible. Why did you stay in academia and in higher education <laughs> and not... Uh, consultancy or any right. other kind of private sector work? I mean, there are definitely, there still are those options being made available to mm. me, but I honestly believe in the work that my mentor started. Mm. And I believe that without him, I would not have found this passion. Mm. And perhaps somewhat arrogantly, I believe that if I can't help somebody else find their passion, that person may not do it. So I stay here to, to teach. I stay mm. here to mentor. I stay here to further research and disseminate knowledge. And it's almost a, a paying it forward <laughs> situation where mm. this was done for me by one person. And I wholly believe that between the two of us, we can do it for more. Mm. We can help more students. We can help our economy in other ways by training, by giving students skills, opportunities. And I just, I, I suppose I could maybe do that elsewhere, but I believe that this is the best place for me to identify those students and to help them and to mentor them and give them some drive and purpose. Hmm. And can you tell me a little bit about the, the work that fires you up, the research <laughs> that keeps you that keeps in the not-so-ivory tower? <laughs> Definitely. My, my research area is um, adolescent health outcomes in South mm. Africa, and it's, it's evolved <laughs> over time. My PhD looked at predominant causes of death and determinants, socioeconomic determinants of adolescent mortality with the, with the hope of if we understand this, we can prevent it. And that sort of evolved into, I need to take a step back and I need to understand behavior. Mm. I mean, adolescent behavior sure. and what influences their behavior then puts them at certain risks, you know? So now in my, my brief postdoc years, I'm looking at adolescent behavior in mm. relation to health decisions that they're making. 
um, but still pulling from the PhD the causes of death and bringing them out and um, just looking at why we should care, you know, why, why adolescents are so important because I really do believe that that is the age where we can make change. Yeah, I mean, as a continent, we are experiencing, and around the world, post-colonial states, Definitely. the global south is experiencing a youth bulge, so there are yes. a lot of young people yes. who make up the majority of the world. Right. And I'd be interested to hear from you, like, what are some of the kind of risks that you found in the behavior, and how, yeah, how you explore those, those particular issues? The yeah. The behavioral risks are, I mean, maybe, let me start with the outcomes, right? So, on the subcontinent, particularly in South Africa, some of the greatest health issues um, adolescents face are infectious disease, um, tuberculosis, um, HIV and AIDS, among others. Now we're seeing an increase in lifestyle diseases, mm. obesity, hypertension, although not a, a necessarily a negative health outcome, but nonetheless something worrisome is obviously our teenage pregnancy rates. And related to each of these are our behaviors. Mm. And within the area of HIV and teenage pregnancy, it's obviously risky sexual behaviors. A lot of, a lot of what I look at is what, what, what determines these behaviors? What are the underlying reasons why adolescents, despite knowing about HIV mm. and AIDS, despite knowing how to prevent an unintended pregnancy, continue to do so? Mm. Because the numbers don't always tell us that. Yeah. Right? So it's a lot of mixed methods research. It's finding out why and how and how do these things perpetuate. Some of the other risky behaviors, to go back to your first question, you know, transactional sexual relationships. Uh, this is putting teenagers at a, a very high risk of HIV infection and unintended pregnancy. In recent years, an increase in alcohol and illicit drug use is also contributing to, to negative health outcomes. And it's really, I'm taking the view that this is not individual behaviors, mm -hmm. right? This is group behaviors and groups are influenced by the neighborhoods they live in, the households they come from. So taking a, a broader population lens, if you will, and looking at, well, how does the community that they live in affect mm. their behavior? How does the household composition affect their behavior? And at, at this stage, because this is a transitional stage from childhood into adulthood, many of the behaviors adopted at this stage is, it is found will then continue into adulthood. Sure. And this is why it's such an important phase to understand. Yeah, most definitely. And I, I'm really interested in the fact that you are using mixed methods to, because, I mean, statistics can tell us one thing about women between the age of 14 to 25 are at the highest risk of contracting HIV, but that statistic doesn't tell us how we actually get there. And, in fact, what I've been also interested in is the ways in which we use these statistics mm -hmm. to then further pathologize sexuality in young women specifically in my in my interest um, and I'm just curious in, in kind of the kind of qualitative um, data methods how you interact with the young people or how how you gather your data <laughs> because I think it's so important to not just reduce it to just the number but to, to yes. further understand the, the larger context I completely agree and, and there's an issue inherent in this is that addressing young people has to be done in a particular way, mm. you know, both for their own understanding, for their own 
security as well as to get the appropriate research. Mm. So it's not it's not easily done. Um, myself, I I don't engage with the adolescents personally because I feel maybe there would be an age gap, maybe mm. they wouldn't be able to relate to me or want to relate to me. So a method that I've used. So young, <laughs> you're so young. They'd relate to you. <laughs> I, well, I'd rather not risk it. <laughs> so a method I've I've recently used is one that has benefited both the research as well as helped in upskilling some quantitative demographers. So I used um, young masters graduates and interns in the program mm. to go out and do the focus groups okay. and to talk to the young people and to maybe understand some of the language that they use. Mm. These days I don't really understand adolescent jargon. And so they are they that's one of the techniques. The other, the other thing that's important to bear in mind, and this is like you say, is that the numbers tell one story, mm. but we really need to get at why. <laughs> mm. So yes, we understand there's a higher risk if you're female between particular ages, but what are those females of those particular ages doing or not doing mm. right, to place them at a higher risk? Mm. And the, the, the focal lens of my research at the moment is not to understand the individual, behavior we could say even asking the the young women we could say well it's because i don't have sex with my bo- uh, sex with a condom with my boyfriend right mm. but it's understanding why is that okay mm. <laughs> from a point of view of is it okay among your friends mm. is it okay in your family is it okay in your community or is it because you want to but you literally cannot access it so it's not my my research with young people is not about falling into this why do you do this yeah no of course (laughs) it's rather in the why is it okay for young people to do this or why is it not okay what would you do differently Mm. if you could no i mean for i think there's also a huge risk in terms of our putting pressure on young people to solve the problems which they come into the world you know with such issues and then suddenly it's like you have done xyz wrong you ought to behave in a particular way um I mean, coming from anthropology, which is over-determined by a colonial legacy, the area of demography studies has also kind of been riddled with kind of, how do I say this, over-determined by a colonial epistemology. Right. In your experience, how, how do you work in, in decolonizing some of the approaches, especially those that have neglected or not seen particular populations as worthy of having agency and such things? That's a, that's such an important thing that I think we need to address in all disciplines mm. in the social sciences, right? In I mean, I hadn't even heard of demography until I got to my second year. And I believe that was part of the colonial legacy. So because we we talk about populations by their composition and one of the ways we classify composition is racial composition. Previously, it's always been considered, or it was, I guess, by and large, used for or to meet racial means mm. um, and apartheid and things like that. And one of the ways that I just address it is by talking about it. Mm. You know, it's just about putting it out there and saying, well, differences within populations do occur. Mm. They occur by race, yes, but we must not forget that race is also based on socioeconomic state. So by not hiding behind language or hiding behind anything um, colonial or 
post-colonial, just talking about it, just bringing it out, mm. just saying this is the situation, this is what, what we need to, to figure out. That's basically how I address it. Sure. And, and don't you, is, for me, it's something that's quite uh, a rock and a hard place that you're caught between because whilst it would be statistically significant to know this is the number of black, I'll go back to the HIV and AIDS example, right. number of black women in rural areas who are infected uh, or at a high risk of infection, whilst also recognizing that that kind of marker is a socially constructed phenomenon. Yes. How do you negotiate that kind of, um, without reifying race, but also yeah. saying, you know, here's an important statistical uh, result. Yeah. Right. And I think that goes back to really understanding the statistical results, right? Mm. So I'll use the, the example of, for example, teenage pregnancy. We will see statistics that teenage pregnancy is higher among, for example, the black African population compared to the other populations. Mm. And I always, always caution anyone who asks me about these statistics, especially percentages, how are we interpreting it, right? Mm. Black African population is the majority. Mm. <laughs> Therefore, if we're looking at just percentages, teenagers within the black African population would appear to have more than the others. Mm. But it's not, it's not comparing apples with apples, right? What we need to do is instead of looking at percentages, look at rates. So for every 1,000 black African teenagers, how many girls are getting pregnant? For every 1,000 white South African teenagers, how many girls are getting pregnant? That gives us more comparable rates. Sure, okay. And therefore, we don't jump to these conclusions. And like you say, these socially constructed conclusions where we want to say, it's a black African problem, mm. or it's an Indian South African problem, mm. or a colored South African problem. Because in my opinion, adolescents, teenagers are teenagers regardless of race. And if we were to be more comparable in terms of their behaviors, the rates per 1,000, regardless of race, we would see that what Indian teenagers are doing, black teenagers are doing, white teenagers are doing, Indi uh, colored teenagers are doing, because that is inherent in the, the, the age group. It's really only when we get to our adult ages that perhaps more, more adoption of religion and culture plays a role that separates behaviors. But as adolescents, I don't, I don't think that there's much of a, a divide. So to address these kinds of things in research, I thoroughly interrogate. When I'm reviewing papers for journals or even my students' work, thoroughly look at what they are saying and how they are saying this. And are the statistics that they are producing and what they're saying about it match? Because that's the other big problem we have, Nasipo, is that I think it's a, a bit of a statistical ignorance, if you want to call it Yeah, that. definitely. People will read statistics and just not really understand what they are seeing and draw these ridiculous socialized conclusions where it could have been done another way to show a more realistic... And yeah, leading to my next question around, because at The Academic Citizen, we are really interested in how knowledge is disseminated. And one of the biggest problems in this country is the big mismatch between what's happening in research labs and in universities and then what gets reported in the media. Yes. And so you will get these wild statistics of saying, teenage pregnancy in KZN, yes, explosion, you know? <laughs> Migration into South Africa yeah. is ridiculously high. And yes, I agree completely. And and so for you guys working in this area, how do you share your knowledge with the wider public outside of the academy to try and get that kind of statistical literacy? 
to be better translated? And I think the the short answer is very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we we try not to report anything that could be misinterpreted. And at the same time, anything, anytime we're asked a question by a newspaper or funding agency or whoever it is, we try to be as thorough in our explanation as possible. Because then it becomes an issue of, uh, are we opening ourselves up to criticism? supporting something that is misinterpreted and the greater responsibility of what is the information we're putting out there mm. you know, what are we trying to tell people are we misinforming them which is just unethical mm. and it's just wrong and the other thing that we we try to do is obviously train statistically literate graduates who go into institutions who go into media and policy making organizations and are then better able to interpret what they're reading so I guess it's a two-pronged approach. For the sure. moment, we're very careful. And in the long run, it's just to make sure that there are more people who are able to understand and can explain. So the responsibility doesn't rest on one or two sure. <laughs> or a small group. Because I think that you know statistical literacy is something that every avenue of life it needs. Every profession needs to be able to read and understand and Unfortunately, because social sciences is not very quantitative, a lot of sectors go without this basic statistical literacy because it's not um, taught. And I mean, I want to ask two questions here. Firstly, how do we get young people, because this starts off from a secondary school aspect, to become interested in statistics and not, statistics and not just kind of be freaked out by it? It's like maths, running away, like you were exactly. as, as an undergraduate. <laughs> Um, how, how do we how do we start to encourage that that kind of because even though the state is kind of in, encouraging STEM research, especially women in STEM, um, we still don't get a lot of young people taking an interest in it. So, in your experience, how would you say we 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 try and do that? You know, I think that we have to just be as honest as possible about the needs mm. in the country, not blanket what we what skills we need. Um, I think that positive and informed career development and career advice at a secondary school basis is, what need, is what's needed. Um, I don't recall having been told in high school, these are the skills that the country needs mm. for you guys to go into. And I think that that would make at least a small difference, if mm. not a huge one, to people who are interested in filling skills gaps. Mm. The other thing, and I hope that I, I do this in, in my own career, is that I I make it seem like it is something that is doable. Yeah. As I mentioned at the beginning, I make it seem as if anyone who is interested should at least try, because that's the first step is having somebody who believes in you enough to give you a chance. And that needs to be that needs to be promoted in and I guess this is true of STEM research as well, right? Yeah. We need younger mentors <laughs> mm. to bridge the gap between the professors, the female professors who have made it and are there, and the ones who are starting out. Sort of the ones in between the ladder to kind of help those at the bottom at least get onto the ladder, mm. <laughs> if that makes sense. And I believe that you know we all have our part to play in that. Mm. And it's small, it's doing interviews and podcasts, it's applying for 
awards, whether you get them or not. It's mm. about meeting with undergraduate students and letting them know what the career entails and why it is, in, why it is needed and what they can do with it. Mm. I don't believe that one person can do it all. But I do believe that one person can make a difference. Mm. I really do. And, and do you think it matters that when we say, I mean, <laughs> as a young woman researcher as well <laughs> yourself, um, but do you think it matters to kind of have this uh, emphasis on women in sciences? Or Definitely. And, and why? Why would it matter that there are, there are women demographers? As a woman, why does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> so my answer is bias, but <laughs> I won't give it nonetheless. I believe that, you know, Women globally are a resource of untapped potential. Mm. Uh, again, this is biased, but I believe we can do more if given the opportunity. Mm. But we've always been socialized into very specific roles. Mm. And those roles have predominantly been caretaking roles, um, homemaker roles, and classically standing one step behind the male roles mm. and there's absolutely no reason for it in my opinion there's no justification for that i believe women are better multitaskers <laughs> i believe that we are able to be caretakers but we're also able to take leadership positions mm. we can be leaders we need obviously assistance we need not assistance in the sense that somebody else does it for us mm. we need assistance in the sense of guidance mm. because we're lagging behind or not being there yet mm. and I believe that guidance should come from each other but I believe that men can be be good leaders as well they can guide us where we need to go to be equals because there's no reason why we're not equals mm. we are definitely equals so I mean it speaks it speaks to the historical deficit that that has taken place that women haven't previously been given exactly. these opportunities not that they couldn't exactly but, exactly yeah. it was just somehow decided that mm. we wouldn't be doing it and um, we went along with it right and there's no reason for it there's no reason why we can't break molds and redefine ourselves in societies and you know as you were speaking earlier about the youth bulge in africa there's I guess it's an unscientific term, but there's a female bulge, mm. more females per males in Africa. Um, and that's a, a resource, mm. that's a development resource, that's a social resource mm. that we could use to, to just further our development in every single way. Mm. No, sure. And I think a lot of the conversation internationally, especially talking about women in sciences, has been about microaggressions against women in the field, conferences which are very male dominated. Have you found that in your experience or are you seeing are you seeing shifts on the continent or even globally as you attend conferences and such? Thankfully I, I haven't seen it as as um, apparent. I've always found within this area of demography and population studies there's a lot of female representation. There's okay. a, a lot of respect for females. One of our biggest associations is the International Union um, for the Scientific Study of Populations, and the president of the union is a female. Okay. And so I, but I do see change. I see a lot more representation from developing countries, which is amazing. It's a lot more um, African, Asian, South American researchers <laughs> taking responsibility for their own context mm. and not relying on the so-called global north 
researchers to identify our problems mm. and deal with them, right? So there's a lot more representation from developing countries, and that's amazing to see. Because cool. I believe we could we could just have a better understanding of our problems, right? Mm. Not to say that the global north can't do our do research on our continent, but it's always that contextual understanding sure. that makes a huge difference. If we live in these communities that we're studying, live in these countries that we're studying, we have inherently something better to offer, sure. something more real in our research, something that will hopefully reach a greater audience than, for example, a paper written on on HIV in KwaZulu-Natal, written by academics sitting in Europe, mm. who have never even been to KwaZulu-Natal, you know sure. what I'm saying? So that, I think, is a very positive step mm. for, for researchers, African ownership. Brilliant. Yeah. See, see if I've gotten through a lot of my, um, my themes that I wanted to explore with you. Um, oh, sure, I wanted to ask you about the ways in which you work with other disciplines. Is, is transdisciplinary research, um, how, yeah. how possible is it to bridge kind of like the hard science aspect and what is seen as a softer science aspect? Do you, yes. do you find there is such a gap to be bridged and how do you work with other, with other areas? I definitely think there is uh, a gap to be bridged. I think that moving forward, interdisciplinary research is the future of research. Mm. I don't think in 20, 30 years time, discipline-specific research will even be needed anymore because the more we research, the more we realize that our issues are interdisciplinary mm. <laughs> and that a better way to understand it is to cross over knowledge and cross over collaborations to better understand our context. And for us in the, the Demography and Population Studies program, we work within sociology, so within the sociology department here, as well as within the School of Public Health. And this interdisciplinary collaboration brings us students who have either a first degree or an undergraduate degree in one of those fields, and then they come here and then they build on and they become the interdisciplinary researchers themselves. It's, it's not always easy. I think that where we are currently, and this is globally, there's still a lot of hold on discipline-specific research. Sure. But I do think it's changing mm. slowly. I think it's easier for me to collaborate now with um, emerging researchers or young researchers interdisciplinary than perhaps it is for older generations to do so, if that makes sense. So no, we're certainly. more willing now mm. to be like, okay, let's work on this together and let's do this together. Whereas an older um, academic or a more experienced academic might be too set mm. within their disciplinary focus. And yet the university, it's encouraged. Within the country, it's encouraged. So that makes the work even more exciting to know that you have this encouragement to work across disciplines. Sure. Well, that sounds super exciting. And I think it, it does give us hope that there are younger and younger researchers coming into these positions who are willing to explore and investigate other avenues of Definitely. conducting research. Because as you said, there is no such thing as a single discipline problem. And so right. why would we have a single <laughs> discipline solution to it? Exactly. I mean, if we just think of the economy, right? How can we even discuss the economy without talking about the social context? Sure. Without talking about even health, mm -hmm. the health of the population 
The economy is dependent on a healthy population who can work, right? So there, there is no single population issue that I think could only be addressed one way. And for this reason, you know, I've, I've collaborated with, with other researchers in sociology, some in social work, some in psychology, and um, I think we've produced research that we can be so passionate about, you know, because we're arguing about it the one minute and we're loving it the next minute and we're bringing all our discipline focuses together and making this paper and making this argument and it really it makes research exciting sure and just as a last question and this is your magnum opus (laughs) (laughs) um for other young people who are interested in demography especially young women who are interested how would you what would you say to to them about how to get into the field and if they're interested how do they find out more about uh the field i well i guess my my final statement would be come speak to me Uh, I literally have an open door policy. As long as the door is open, you can come in and ask me anything you want. Mm. And I think added to that is just take the first step. Mm. You know? Don't don't let anything keep you from at least inquiring about it, from mm. at least finding out about it. Take the first step. It's always the hardest step to take, but it's the most important one you will ever take. So look at our website, come visit me, where I have um, other doctoral students and postdocs you can chat to. We're more than always more than willing to to listen and talk, but it it does rely on individuals being brave enough Mm. or making the time. Everyone's very busy these days, but make the time to find out more. Find Mm. out about your future. Think ahead. Don't just think of today. Yeah. And And is there, like, I mean... And it's a, an intense question to ask <laughs> um, because I don't know what the first book would be that I would recommend for someone who's interested in anthropology. But right. for somebody who's, you know, a first year student or even someone who's just, you know, sitting in their office listening to this podcast and thinking, how do I even, where would I find anything about demography? And, like, you know, would it just be me reading graphs? Like, <laughs> okay. what, what would be something I, I could look at online or a book I could read that would give me a, a good sense of, hey, this could be something that could pique my interest in demography oh you're right that is a it's a big question right that one is not easy but i think if anyone is is listening to this and just wants to maybe find out something related to to demography perhaps google the demographic transition theory sure okay right that's like the basis of our discipline is this theory that explains how populations um, develop and how populations transition from having high fertility and high mortality to low fertility and low mortality. And the reason I'm suggesting this is because, not because it's like our guideline or our Bible, so to speak, but because in today's day and age, we can look at that theory and find so many things wrong with it mm. that it warrants an interest in finding out more. Sure, okay. That we look at a uh, uh, model developed in Europe that worked for Europe and was and is hailed as a prolific model but we look at our own situation and we're like no it's time for the African model sure <laughs> it's time for us to redefine what we know and what we've been taught and so if anyone is interested and and has that um, that need to to find out more about then maybe look at the Brilliant. Cool. That's some homework for you. Thank you so much for your time, Nicole. Thank you, Nisipo. I appreciate it. 
Hi, my name is Brian Mshanga. I'm currently a PhD student at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, my area of research is corporate governance and uh, development. There are not so many women in science, and I'd like to qualify those women, especially black women in science. And uh, when one looks at the stats of the science department, one can realize that most of the students that are there, at least at UKZN, most of the students who are there are male and they are across the board, but you do not get females. You get one or two females, but most of them are males and most of them come from outside South Africa. So that in itself, if, can, if it can be used as a sample, that is telling us something. So when one looks at that sample within the academia and within that academic pool, one realizes that especially postgraduate, it's very difficult to see. Now, one would ask why. I think there is not maths and science in school are not subjects that girls are often tend, tend to gear towards or push towards. Those are subjects that are mainly for males and therefore males are more encouraged to do well in that. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAO, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAO is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asao.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by me, Simbarashe Wondem. Jager Melkel created our jingles. (laughs) 